Don't you love seeing what our partners are doing? Man, it just makes your heart just swell with joy. When you see what they do and who they are, it hopefully drives you to ask why they do that. I brought this to your attention last week. Why do people go to those lengths and live in those places? And why do we then dig deep in our wallets and organize our efforts to make sure that God's message goes global. What's, what's, what's the fundamental root reason beneath that? We've been drawing our answer from Psalm 96 and answering this question for two weeks, the matter of why. And we've been looking at the church's missionary song, Psalm 96. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to actually hold the reading of our text till the very end. Can we do that? Uh, We read it last week. We read some of it this morning already. And so I'm just going to ask you to find Psalm 96 in your Bible. And let's look again this week at the matter of why. And I want to especially pay attention to the second half of this psalm. We'll read through that. We'll kind of uh, dissect it, peel it apart. And then as we close this morning, we're going to read the entire psalm once more, all right? But Psalm 96 is what I call and what other commentators have called the, the church's missionary song. And I think the best way to see it is in this simple picture that I've drawn in my notes. showed it to you last week. Here's what this psalm, I think, here's how it's best understood. There's there's several ways to understand it because it is an actual song. It's a Hebrew song, so they would chant it or sing it. Um, I think this is grammatically and linguistically a good way to see it. That verses 4 through 6 really describe the... The fundamental root reason that we witness and we worship. In fact, it comprises the, the actual song of the church, of God's people. This is the missionary song. It's all about God's greatness. And as we looked at that last week, especially verses 4 through 6, we saw there were four reasons that God is great. Can I review those with you briefly just by reading them to you? Here are the four reasons that God is great based on Psalm 96. Say them with me. He's great because of his salvation, of his position, of his creation, and of his character. Incidentally, you also find these very same four reasons that God is great spelled out in Revelation. So in the Old Testament, they were ascribing God worth and glory and majesty. And at the end of time, this is what... This will be what all creation and angels and saints will be ascribing as well. In fact, Revelation 4 and 5 lay out these very same four things. That God is great because of his salvation. The phrase in Revelation 5 is that here's the lamb who's worthy because he was slain. Because he's ransomed to God a people from every nation and language. He's great because of position. He's high and lifted up. He's seated on the throne of his creation. Revelation 4.11 says that You are worthy because you created all things. And then of his character, Revelation 4 and 5 talk about his glory and majesty and his power and his strength and his honor. So it's 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 just very uh, uh, insightful that these four things really show us God's greatness. And these, these things form the essence of our song. They they form the foundation for why we worship God. And so as you look at these reasons God is great, we're brought back to our diagram once more. Remember, Psalm 96 is a a look into God's greatness in four ways that then moves us to witness. We saw that last week, but now we see that it brings us to worship as well. 
We read those verses earlier, verses 7 through 13, and then we saw so much in there about what happens when people really see God's greatness. They begin to genuinely, authentically worship this great God. Have you ever asked yourself this question? How do I know if I'm experiencing authentic worship? How do I know if verses 7 through 13 are actually occurring, if this is happening? I think verses 7 through 13 not only describe um, the response we give to God, but they also give us five signs for genuine worship. So this morning, I want to kind of walk through these verses, the last part of Psalm 96, and just kind of investigate, kind of uh, diagnose ourselves. Are these signs of genuine, authentic, true worship present in your life and in our church? Because if they're not, it may, it may be that we don't have a worship problem. Maybe we have a vision problem. That we're just, we, we don't see God as high and lifted up as he truly is. We don't see him as great as he actually is. That's the antidote to weak worship. So let's analyze, can we? Verses 7 through 13. Here are five signs of genuine worship that stems from seeing God and all of his greatness. I'll show you all five at one time. You can kind of make a list of them. I'll walk through these hopefully somewhat briefly. Notice, first of all, genuine worship involves my physical participation. Look at some words here. Verse 7, you see the word ascribe three times in 7 and 8, actually. It mirrors the times that he mentions the word sing in verses 1 and 2. Do you see that? He says sing three times to begin the psalm. He then, in verses 7 and 8, says ascribe three times. He also uses the word worship. He uses the word tremble. Uh, the word say. There's several verbs and, and commands here that describe that something is happening physically. I think this is important that we not miss this. There are multiply, There's a multiple number of verbs in the Old New Testament for worship. Did you know that? We typically use the single word worship to describe our reaction, but there are things like clap your hands. Uh, here's one I like. Shout. Like I like that word, you know? We can get loud. Uh, he encourages folks to play upon the instruments with, with loudness. There's a, there's a volume uh, aspect to worship. He talks about uh, lifting your voice. He says lifting your hands. And that's just a, a few of them. Taylor and I this week were looking through a, a presentation that someone gave that he knows and went through many of the Hebrew verbs and Greek verbs that talk about worship. One of my favorites I've shared with you before is the Greek word for worship actually draws its meaning from the idea of leaning forward to kiss. And so it, it implies this posture of humility, of bowing, and yet also of, of adoration and love. You see, here's what I think we can derive from not only Psalm 96 and these words ascribe, worship, tremble. Even if you look at 11 through 13, look at this with me. He here uses nature and personifies how we should worship. Look at all the, the ways there's movement and there's action. He says, the heavens will be glad, the earth rejoices, the sea should what? Roar. And all that fills it. Let the field do what? Exalt and everything in it. The trees of the forest should do what? Sing for joy. Now, trees aren't going to sing. The sea's not going to roar in the sense that we understand it, but he's, he's personifying what should happen in the people of God when they see just how great he is. So here's what Psalm 96 is saying, that you, you cannot 
And I hope you'll hear this well and be appropriately nudged, maybe even poked, maybe even jabbed, maybe even punched. You cannot see God's greatness and not have it affect you physically in some way. Now, I hope you're wrestling with that. I'm not prescribing how it will affect you. I'm not saying everyone's got to be a hand raiser, a knee bower, a shouter. I admit and, and would agree with you. There's a variety of styles and gifts and personalities. Would you say amen to that? But I don't think the scriptures show Anyone truly worshiping, with just the verbs that they use, by the way, in the Hebrew and the Greek, in just the verbs alone, there's not this place where it's unresponsive. There aren't corpses at worship. There are people who've been made alive by God. And I, yes, it will come out in different ways, and perhaps on a spectrum, but I want to say to you with courage, it will come out. I want to encourage you, let it out. Because one of the signs of genuine worship is physical participation. We could use the word posture. I thought about using that word, in fact, but I think maybe that connotes a more specific idea that maybe we would kind of parameterize in a way that wouldn't be the most healthy. I think the thing that is calling for here is just that there's a physical participation in the act of worship. Now, I think you inherently know this to be true. Here's why. Because I don't think there's a single couple in this room who has a decently good marriage that hasn't experienced the physical result of that love. I mean, I didn't say you had a great marriage or that it was super duper. If you just have a decently good marriage, something about your love for your spouse causes you to do physical things. One of the ones is intimacy sexually. (laughs) But you can back that truck up. You buy gifts. You arrange your schedule. You hug. You kiss. You say, I love you. You hold their hand. In other words, you do something physically Usually to the, to the degree of the love in the relationship. Are you with me? And by the way, the converse is true in marriage as well. If you're struggling in a marriage right now, you probably feel the physical distance and coldness, don't you? And oh, you wish for that embrace. You wish there wasn't a five-foot gap in the bed. You wish there was conversation. You wish there was physical, like, like, eyesight connection oh you wish for that but you know that the love has grown cold and so you feel it physically and yet you know what we sometimes admit that's true physically in our marriages and yet we are content in our in our love with God to almost approach it like well I showed up impress me can I just give you some very practical starting points for those who who may feel very timid to to get involved physically. And again, I'm not trying to prescribe a certain method, but I'm trying to nudge you towards what I think the Bible calls us towards, and that is being physically involved in the right way as God leads you and gifts you and anoints you 
in worship. Here's something one of the worship team members told me just today. That sometimes it just takes the, the first step. Like, let's just say you want to lift your hand and give God glory. You're like, oh, what do people think around me? Or they, they look at me. Well, first of all, not everyone's looking at you like you think. Just relax there. You're probably not that important. Um, and second of all, just, just try it. Because what happens is, as you get comfortable praising God in different physical postures and ways, you, you find that it's actually meaningful. So you don't want to conjure it up, or you don't want to manufacture it, but you must be willing sometimes to take some risks. Um, one of our ladies mentioned earlier that she just was at home with her kids in prayer time, and she just asked her kids, you know, can we just hold our hands out and extend them to God and say, as we pray to God today, we're just going to hold our hands and say, God, we bless you and praise you. And her kids were like, oh, we'll try that. They were kind of you know, awkward in one sense, but it was a good practice. And I want to say this to you. I think sometimes being physically involved in worship actually takes some practice. Is that okay to say? Nothing wrong with that. You want to be a better cook? You practice. You want to be a better at your job or be a better husband or wife? There's things we practice at. That doesn't mean that we're doing them inauthentically. We're just learning how. And I just want to encourage you, some of you who are, you sense God leading you to physically express your joy and your happiness in him, that he's your treasure. When the church is gathered, go ahead and take the risk. Take that first step and just, just practice Maybe it's the posture of bowing or the knee or the hand up or, or actually lifting your voices. Or here's one for, for most guys. Just take your hands out of your pockets. That might be a huge first step for some of you, okay? And have them free. In fact, I think a lot of guys put their hands in their pockets because they don't want to have to deal with empty hands. Like, oh, I'll pull them out. i got to do something with them. Yeah, take them out and just see what God might do with lifted hands that might clap. Are you hearing my heart in this? I'm not demanding a certain style. I can't do that anyway. I'm not trying to prescribe a certain method. I'm simply saying that when I read the Bible from Old and New Testament, there is something physical that happens when we realize that Christ is the priceless treasure of our life. And our love for him cannot just be contained. To, it has to come out. Let me hurry through these. I'm not making tracks like I need to. Second sign of genuine worship is it affects my financial possessions. Notice the word here in the text is simple. It just says bring an offering. Isn't that interesting? It's almost this assumption or like this known fact. Like, of course we're going to bring something. He tells us to. He expects it. But he doesn't spend a lot of time there, does he? One reason he doesn't is because I think they had the book of Leviticus already in their possession Part of the law. And by the way, Leviticus is an entire book in the, in the Israelites' decalogue, we'll call it, their law, that described and prescribed how to live your life as an offering to God. You would bring sacrifices, or I should say they would bring sacrifices of various portions of their um, life. They would do this sometimes daily, weekly, annually. But in other words, Leviticus just, just describes how the Israelites were to actually live as an offering. So this would not surprise them. It was expected. And can I say to you that when we come to worship, we bring something to God. Not to earn anything. Amen, church? We don't earn a thing. We bring it as a grateful response. I just want to encourage you. You'll find that your worship will be deepened when you put some financial resources behind it. You will. 
Because the Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, your heart tends to follow your treasure. And as you begin to invest in God's kingdom, what's happening here and then in these places you see across the globe and, and his uh, church, you'll find that your heart will follow that. So I want to encourage you, if you've not begun to give regularly, the Sunday gathering is a great place to do that. You may do it online by just having that taken out each week. You can do it by bringing it and placing our offering boxes. You can use cash. You can use a check. Yes, we still take those, and you still write them. That's fine. There's all kinds of ways to give, and there's not one that's better or worse. It's your choice. Some have preferences about that. That's great. I'm just saying let's rally together and realize that our worship, genuine worship, never comes to the table empty-handed, not to earn anything but to respond and give back. Third thing I notice in this text that worship evokes my verbal praise. I see this not only through the whole psalm, like sing and exalting and rejoicing, but I see the word, verse 10, the word say among the nations. I just, I just see a lot of verbalness here. In other words, our, our, our tongue is loosed. Our lips are opened. And so worship just erupts in verbal praise. Now you may wonder, is this now limited to, to only those who can speak or talk? Is that what you're saying, Todd, that I've got to actually be able to say something verbally? No, because regardless of the language, you can communicate. I went to college with a deaf pastor. He was uh, just ahead of me in a few grades, but he's pastoring now. His name is Reggie Rempel was his name. He was deaf. And though he could preach with his hands, he did make a lot of noise. If you know someone is deaf, sometimes they'll... And I'm not mocking, I'm just saying they can't help but speak something verbally, right? And they're speaking with their hands way better than I ever do. I'm a hand guy, I know, but man, they actually make sense with their hand motions, right? And the things are coming from their gut, and he never knew he was loud, but I loved watching him preach. Because I only got to see his hands and his passion and his intensity, but I would hear his, his, his uh, sounds. So you know what the, the psalmist here is saying? Regardless of your language, man, say it. And worship evokes praise. You can't help but talk about what you love. In fact, I think this is one of the things that we have to admit. We know what we love. Because we talk about it so much. What's the last thing you've talked about? The most thing you've talked about? The thing that occupies your conversation. Just, just maybe ask your spouse right now, a friend near you. Hey, what's the latest thing I've talked about the most? And then get ready for the answer. It could be tough. I'm joking in one way, but another way I'm not. Our checkbooks and our conversations tell us what we love. These are two things mentioned in this psalm, that we will bring an offering and we will praise God. What does your checkbook and your conversation say about what you love? Fourth, genuine worship calls for my actual presence. You know, when I wrote this down in my notes, I actually just wrote down presence. And then I realized this is 2019. I had to put the word actual in there. I mean, in what century would you have ever had to qualify the word presence, right? But I think today it's important to because we have people who check in online. And some for good reason. We have all for live streaming most weeks for good reasons. But there are some who've actually overstepped those bounds and they use digital means to actually substitute for physical presence. And that's an isolation tactic. 
It's a way to avoid being known, which is really a great blessing. Can I just say to you that the psalmist here calls for actual presence. He says in verse 8, come into his courts. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. This is a congregational psalm. It's a collective gathering call. So he's asking for, for the corporate people of God to gather together. Come into the courts of the temple. It's a plural thing. And when you hear that, you may say, well, Todd, are you saying that we can't worship individually? Not at all. But I am saying this to you. You can't worship individually only. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, I believe, are the four best chapters on what New Testament worship looks like from the first century forward. And in those four chapters, the words come together are mentioned six times. So there, there was individual house and smaller group kind of churches, units. Paul knew there's got to be a way for you all to come together. And often when they did, it was a little disorderly, a little chaotic. You read those chapters. And so he brought order to that and structure. But I, I love the way that Paul never dismissed individual worship. But he never either allowed, uh, he never even allowed those uh, to that be the only way we do it. Both are important. We must emphasize both. In fact, let me just lay this simple nugget to you and have you process it in your small group, process it in your family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we're called the temple of the Holy Spirit, and in 1 Peter, where we're called living stones, we're called a temple of the Lord. Did you know those pronouns there are all plural? When he says, do you not know that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's a plural pronoun. Do you know he's actually speaking to the church at large? He's saying, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's presence now, presence now dwells in his temple. And what is this temple? Who is this temple? It's the church. Now, this is not to dismiss that the Holy Spirit indwells you individually. Ephesians teaches this. The minute you're saved, God's Holy Spirit seals you, gifts you. He indwells you. That's completely theologically true. Amen? We've often overemphasized the individual nature. Welcome to our Western culture. We've often overemphasized the, the individual aspect and forgotten that in, in the New Testament, most of, Paul, of, Saul, of Paul's pronouns are about the church at large. Your body is where God's spirit resides. His presence is seen and felt and known. So church, genuine worship it calls for actual presence to prioritize when your church says this is when we will meet to worship and glorify the Lord together. Yes, we will. Come into his courts. It's been a pattern of God's people from the Old and New Testament. Then lastly, and this is my favorite of the five, by the way, it adjusts my current perspective. I love the way the psalmist begins in about the end of verse 10 to speak about the coming of Jesus. So there is a near prophetic element here in which the Messiah was uh, prophesied. There's also a far prophetic element in which we see the second coming of Christ pictured here as well. But what I think is most interesting is that his coming, you see the words in verse 13, for he comes? It's mentioned twice there. Do you see that? Surrounding those that, that uh, phrase mentioned twice, for he comes and for he comes, is this idea of judging. It's mentioned before in verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. 
It's mentioned after when he says he'll judge the earth and the world in righteousness. He'll judge the peoples in faithfulness. So surrounding this idea of the Lord coming, now watch this church, is this idea of the Lord judging correctly and righteously and with equity. Now here's what we often think. The Lord's coming, oh my goodness, watch out. And the Lord's coming has often for the church, uh, maybe I should say the American church, this sense of like, man, you better be on guard and, and, and watch your back because the Lord's coming. It's almost like it's not hopeful. It's like, oh my goodness, that's, that's when all the fun stops. But kind of have the sense that when the Lord comes back, you know, then this life's over. Oh man, we, we got to go to the next one. I mean, it, none, there's not a dreadful tone in this portion about the Lord's coming at all. In fact, I, I think the adjectives are what really helps us understand this. He says he'll judge the peoples with what? Equity. In other words, when you look around at the current condition, are you not sometimes just so dismayed at the inequity? Does the injustice happening not bother you? All the isms, racism, sexism, classism, does it not just hurt your heart? That no matter how many laws we pass, no matter who we elect, we can't solve basic problems? Does it not make you long for the coming of the Lord when he will judge with equity? If you knew that when Christ, and you do know this, I'm just trying to paint your picture. If you knew that when Christ came back, all the unfairness, injustice would finally be over, you wouldn't dread it. You would long for it. That someone is going to come one day who will judge the earth in righteousness. In other words, they're not going to sit on the bench and make a bad call. They're not going to have... Uh, you know, be tired at 4.30 and make a quick probation call or a long sentence call because they want to get out of their jobs and go home. They will judge perfectly, righteously. They will judge the peoples in faithfulness. Who doesn't long for that judge? And just reading through that in the past few weeks, I, I, I found myself not dreading the second coming of Jesus. But I found myself saying this, Lord, come quickly. I'm not trying to escape life in a weird way. I love what God is doing here, and I want to join God in his patient, long-suffering so that more men and women will come to Christ. But I'm just going to be really frank with you. The older I get, the more I long for heaven. The more I long for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't you? Because he will then judge the world with equity. The perfect one will make every ruling right. Oh, man, that stirs my heart. Will you pray with me this week? Lord, come quickly. And even things that are inequitable because of the fall of man and sin, like disease, sickness. Some of you have come through a long battle with cancer. Some of you are right now in the battle of old age. You're having to adjust in ways you never thought you'd have to. There's things that aren't a result of someone's specific sin or even your stupidity. It's just the fall of man means our bodies decay. It makes you long for God's kingdom to come, doesn't it? It does me. You see, this is what genuine worship does. When we see the greatness of our God, 
these five things, they happen to us, perhaps in different ways and incrementally and progressively, but all five of these signs will be true in a person and in a body that's genuinely worshiping. And so out of this, we just kind of see our our take-home truth, our kind of main point. Let's read it together, can we? Here's really the point of this psalm. It's a missionary song. And remember, last week we saw that this is really a song of witness, verses 1 through 3, and it was motivated by God's greatness. We're just going to substitute one word today. Let's read it together, shall we? The church's missionary song is one of worship, and it is motivated by God's greatness. So really, we've only seen just a main point in both weeks, that the core of this psalm, verses 4 through 6, refer again to the diagram, the core of this psalm, 4, 5, and 6, they motivate us to sing this song as a witness, and they motivate us to sing this song as worship. And both are tied together. Taylor taught us this so perfectly. Worship is our foundation. Mission is our pursuit. But mission only exists currently because worship doesn't. And so we are proclaiming among the nations the greatness of our God so that they too will believe and see the glorious, righteous judge in all of his equity and faithfulness. But once Christ comes, there will be no more need of witnessing. All we'll need then is just to worship forever. And we'll sing this refrain of Psalm 96 endlessly. Great is our God. And we'll ask the earth and the fields and the trees and the seas to join us as we praise God together. Now, that's a truth that you can't change, all right? Notice how we stated it. It's not something we're asking you to do. It's not something you've got to write down as on your to-do list. You don't check it off. That's just true. Our missionary song is one of witness and worship, and God's greatness motivates every bit of it. But let's drill down even further into another action point, can we? Like we did last week. We talked about the missionary song as a witness, and that if that's true, then what can we do, so to speak? Here's how we'll approach the one with worshiping. That since the church's missionary song is one of worship and is motivated by God's greatness, watch this, experience the authentic effects of worship by elevating the awesomeness of God. In other words, don't don't take these five things and say, okay, I've got to check these off my worship box today. Taylor and I were laughing this week about this. We're, We're not trying to manufacture some list for you. We're just letting you know that as you see God in all of his glory and greatness, there are some things you could expect to see that are natural. I mean, should say supernatural. They're, they're produced by the Spirit. Generosity, presence, gratitude, physical involvement, these kinds of things, all right? And so the key is not to leave with, a, with another checklist about worship like we didn't leave with a checklist on witnessing. The key is to focus on the core of the psalm. And don't lose me, church. Hang with me. To focus on the core of the psalm, verses 4, 5, and 6. And let's elevate the awesomeness of God. Now, I hope you're asking right now, well, how do we do that? That's a great question. I want to leave you with, I want to drill down even deeper in the last remaining moments. And I share with you what I think is the best way to elevate the awesomeness of God. You ready? By regularly reading the Bible. I hope you're not disappointed with that answer. 
I sense a little bit of the air out of the balloon there for a minute. But watch this. What has God written down and given us that describes his global, historical, redemptive plan to bring someone around his throne from every nation, language, and tribe? It's the Bible. Now, now church, listen very carefully. I think many of you may know this. Some of you who are new or maybe even just become Christians, I want you to hear this well. The Bible wasn't written to tell you what to do primarily. Hear me loud and clear, church. No mistake in this language. The Bible was not primarily written to tell you what to do. The Bible was primarily written to tell you what God has done. So if you read it as a moral guidebook, you're going to come away usually crushed, weighed down, feeling like I'm not up to this task. I mean, I was doing a wedding Friday night, and just reading seven verses, I think it is, from Colossians 3. Uh, the, the couple had picked them out, verses, beautiful verses. But just reading those, I'm like, who, who's up to this task of bearing with each other, forgiving each other? I mean, we need that every day. Who can do that perfectly? No one can. But God has done that perfectly in Jesus for us. Did you know that? And the Bible is not primarily a book to tell you what to do. It's primarily a book to tell you what God has done. And therein lies the joy of reading the pages of Scripture in his creation, he calls Abraham then, chapter 12, and he says, watch this, he says, to you, Abraham, I will bring forth one who will be a blessing to all the nations. And when you get to the end of Revelation, guess what we find? Someone from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue around the throne, someone there being blessed. You see, the, the, the meta-narrative of God's word is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. And what he's done to bring a people to himself at all cost, even the cost of his own son. And if you want to see the awesomeness of God, if you want to have your view of God raised and elevated so where your missionary song is one of witness and worship, if you want to experience the authentic effects of true worship that just flow out of you, that you're compelled to worship physically, financially, presently, Here's the best first step you can take. Just start reading the Bible. And you will see in the pages of Scripture that God's so great, you cannot contain Him. And often you won't understand Him. But you'll be thankful that He did what He did to save your wretched soul. It's why the gospel must be shared every week. It's why we gather to celebrate the gospel. Because it is so beautiful in our ears and so wonderful in our sight. So church, here's what I call you to. I call you to engage in the one habit that will bring about the most important transformation of your life over a long period of time. Just engage in the regular reading of your Bible. Watch God explode off the page with his beautiful redemptive plan. Watch your life slowly but gradually change as God is magnified before you. And what you'll find is this. Your witness and your worship will follow suit. Because you don't have a witness issue. You don't have a worship issue. We have a vision issue. So I invite you to see how great our God is. Can we do that by reading Psalm 96 together now? Would you stand with me, church?
Psalm 96. We're going to read the entire chapter as we close out our Go Week. Let's read together this beautiful missionary song of the church. Together, church. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness.